0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor in chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that the following podcast was produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. You can visit the SLSA online at southernlaborstudies.org, and you can follow the SLSA on Twitter at Southern Labor SA. I hope you enjoy the following interview. Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Greta DeJong, Associate Professor of History at the University of Nevada, Reno. She is the author of You Can't Eat Freedom Southerners and Social Justice After the Civil Rights Movement, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Greta DeJong, welcome to Working History. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So your book, You Can't Eat Freedom, looks at what happened in the rural south, especially in the plantation regions of Alabama, Louisiana and Mississippi after the mid-1960s after what many people see as the height of the civil rights movement. So I'm hoping that you could start us out um, by answering why you think the story of what happened in these places after the 1960s is an important one.
1: All of these counties that I focused on in in those three states in general received a lot of national attention in the 1960s and also later on from scholars of the civil rights movement because of things like Freedom Summer and the other projects that were um, carried out there by the major civil rights organizations trying to overturn the Jim Crow system. And they were majority black counties as well. And so you would think that there would be quite significant possibilities for changes to be brought about um, in the wake of things like the Voting Rights Act, for example, if people could get elected to public office and then they would be able to implement some reforms. Mm -hmm. But if you visit those places today, it seems like not a lot has changed Mm -hmm. since the 1960s. There's still... Very poor, the public schools are underfunded, there's still dis, um, segregation, discrimination and obstacles to voting as well. Because, you know, poor people just find it a lot harder to get to the registrar's office and to participate politically. So I think we I wanted to try to understand, you know, why there was so little change in these regions mm-hmm. um, by looking at how people continue the freedom struggle beyond the 1960s, and then kind of what were the obstacles to progress that existed. Kind of, I think we need to get away from this idea that the civil rights movement ended racism, and now everything's, you know, Mm
0: fine. Right. (laughs) There's equality. So can you start us out by briefly talking about sort of what was the status quo in some ways? What was happening on the land in these plantation districts at this point in time, you know, after, let's say, let's use 1965 as sort of the the demarcating time. What, you know, what was happening and what were the kind of broader transformations occurring in Southern agriculture?
1: Yeah, so what, these these regions were going through some really major changes, both politically and economically, because the civil rights movement was happening at around the same time, as the mechanization of agriculture Mm -hmm. in these regions. And that meant a lot of plantation workers were being displaced by machines and chemical herbicides that were doing, um, taking over a lot of the the work on on the plantations. And that, I mean, that was something that began really in the 1930s with the New Deal and the kind of the cuts in production and the subsidies to plantation owners. Um, And so a lot of people were being displaced uh, in that decade sharecroppers and tenants and planters were starting to invest some of their government money in tractors and harvesters at that point and then during world war ii it wasn't such a problem because um uh, the uh, jobs were opening up in the north and so a lot of people migrated north to take advantage of that and that raised but then that raised labor the cost of labor in the south because there weren't as many workers mm-hmm. and planta- plantation owners that gave, gave them more incentive to mechanize the plantations and reduce their need for workers. And then uh, in the 1950s and 60s, the civil rights movement kind of added uh, a political motivation to the economic motivations for mechanization. Um, a lot of people who were involved in the movement lost their jobs or were evicted because of their political activity, like if you Mm -hmm. went down to register to vote and you were a sharecropper, um, the landowner would probably evict you um, for that. And then just beyond kind of the economic reprisals against people involved in the movement, there was a more general push by white landowners and the political leaders in these counties to basically just get rid of black people by Cutting off economic support, so cutting things like public assistance and and all of that, and trying to force them to leave. They're really trying to make it hard for people to survive economically in the South, kind of hoping that that, that, that then they would just have no choice but to migrate away.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how then, had or had not, as the case may be, the passage of civil rights legislation and really sort of the movement more broadly, things like the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and so forth, um, imp- how did that impact the rural Southerners here? Or were these places that in some ways were largely untouched by those things?
1: Um, I wouldn't
0: say they were untouched,
1: but I think that, you know, what, what, what happened in the late 1960s, what, I think it makes it really clear that it's one thing to pass legislation and another thing to enforce it mm-hmm. so after all of the marches and demonstrations and boycotts that got that legislation passed there had to be more marches and more demonstrations and boycotts and lawsuits to mm-hmm. try to get people to comply with the law and i don't think that's unique you know to the south i think that happened all over the nation and the you know the basic enforcement of civil rights legislation has been really uneven depending mm-hmm. on you know how committed our political leaders are to doing that. And then another thing that people realised pretty quickly, um, civil rights activists working in the South, was that political empowerment and economic empowerment for black southerners were really deeply connected and intertwined. You couldn't really get one without the other. If people Mm -hmm. were going to get evicted and fired from their jobs if they registered to vote, for example, or if unemployed people didn't have any choice, you know, but to migrate away, that was going to make it a lot harder to elect African-Americans to public office or to push the white political leaders into doing things um, that would improve conditions in these communities. Mm -hmm. And then there was just like the larger issue um, that I think really, in, in some ways, it eclipsed civil rights after the 60s was just the huge amount of suffering that was happening on on the plantations with people being displaced and losing mm-hmm. their jobs and people were homeless and hungry and all of that. So um, the title of the book, You Can't Eat Freedom, that's from a quotation by an activist in Alabama, <clears throat> Israel Cunningham. He said that and that kind of really encapsulated, you know, he said you can't eat freedom and a ballot is not to be confused with a dollar bill. It kind of really expressed the priority that people needed to give to those economic issues.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it was really, I mean, it was really necessary to solve those problems if if civil rights legislation was going to mean anything, right? If, if black people were going to ever enjoy any kind of freedom or equality or, or justice out of that.
0: Right. And so this might be a a good way to segue into the chapters of your book that focus on the Southern Cooperative Movement and its role in continuing the freedom struggle after the 1960s. Can you tell us what this Southern Cooperative Movement was, how it emerged, and what sorts of issues it was focusing on? Yeah, the Cooperative
1: Movement uh, grew really grew directly out of the civil rights movement. It started as a way to try to address some of those um, economic problems that people had, especially with displacement. Um, civil rights activists were trying to find ways to deal with the economic reprisals, the firings and evictions, and then just the general... Um, displacement of workers in this region so they wanted to try to give um, people who lost their jobs a way to try to earn some income support themselves um, maybe reduce their dependence on white employers and they're they encouraging people to get together and, and pool their resources and set up cooperative farms and businesses And then um, civil rights organizations helped them to get donations and and loans from supporters of the movement. And then later on, some liberal foundations like the Ford Foundation and also um, the federal government through the Office of Economic Opportunity offered some support to them as well. And it kind of, you know, so it grew out of these um, efforts that were happening in communities kind of separate from each other at first, it seems, and then a group of about 20 leaders from 20 cooperatives got together and talked about how they could coordinate things a little bit better. And out of that came the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which was formed in 1967. Mm -hmm. And the Federation became this vehicle through which uh, a lot of um, people who had kind of started out in the civil rights movement, that was how they continued their involvement in the freedom struggle after the 1960s in the South. It's was this major organization, and it's, I mean, it's still around today. It's done amazing work. And the, the goal is you know, it kind of combine those economic and political goals of trying to empower people in both of those areas. So they gave support to cooperatives. They encouraged people to form cooperatives, and they trained people to run cooperative businesses, and they were really trying to demonstrate the effectiveness of this model um, as a way to deal with unemployment and poverty in these regions. And they were hoping that if they could prove that, you know, this this, this would work, these kinds of um, enterprises would work and were successful, they were hoping they would be able to get the same kind of support from the government and from private banks and businesses that um, other kinds of more traditional enterprises typically received
0: mm-hmm.
1: um so and they did i mean they they started with a two-year pilot project that was funded by the ford foundation and the OEO. and um after a few years they you know they were working in lots and four and four four states originally in different communities and they formed a lot of cooperatives and they were going well and after the grant ran out, they you know they reported on their progress and the jobs they created and the economic development that they had helped to um, generate. And then they asked more money, asked you know for for more funding so that they could expand this approach to other places around the South. Mm-hmm. And everyone agreed that this was really great, and they were doing great work, and they were you know really helping to solve social problems in the South, but no one was willing to fund <laughs> any kind of expansion, uh-huh. um, at least not at the levels that the FSC thought were necessary to really you know, make these things um, self-sustaining. So instead of Ford and the OEO, instead of helping the FSC to expand, kind of told them, why don't you just focus on a few co-ops that you think are most likely to succeed and we'll give you money for that. and mm-hmm the FSC just, they couldn't do that. They'd encouraged all these people to form cooperatives and they didn't want to, you know, just abandon them. So so there was a lot of tension around Mm -hmm. that with both um, the Ford Foundation and the OEO. Uh, Eventually the FSC ended up losing funding from both of them, but they continued kind of on their own. You know, they um, solicited donations from supporters and got a few kind of small grants here and there. And then sometimes they were able to get a little bit more money from other federal agencies and state, state governments, too, sometimes. So it was a struggle, but, um, you know, they, they're still around. They're celebrating there. 50th anniversary
0: this year. So. Wow. So um, in, a, in addition to the, um, you know, the, the funding challenges in some ways to, to support this movement and to expand it, um, were some of these decisions to, you know, for example, by the OEO, by um, Ford Foundation, were these politically motivated, do you think, in terms of um, the successes and trying to kind of roll those back? Or was it, um, you know, strictly a, a sort of financial, um, a financial thing in terms of, you know, this challenge for the movement?
1: I think um in terms of the OEO part of it was political just because they were under a lot of pressure from um, you know, segregationists in the South not to fund these enterprises. Um, but I think uh, I think a lot of it was financial too. Mm-hmm. In the early seventies, you know, the nation was going through an economic recession. In the case of Ford, some of it had to do with just a general and with the OEO as well, actually, it was a problem in both of them. Um, just the general kind of skepticism people had um, and doubt that poor black people were capable of running their own businesses and farms and cooperatives and things. And so they were really, you know, watching them really closely and sometimes interfering with them. And that undermined them a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um So, yeah, and then with, you know, with the OEO and also um, the Department of Agriculture, you know, historically USDA has really pushed agribusiness and, you know, large, large, large landowners. And Mm -hmm. there was this kind of attitude within USDA and some people in the OEO as well that it was just a lost cause to try to help small farmers as most of these black farmers were. And that's what the FSC was trying to do, kind of trying to help some of these small farmers stay on the land um, <clears throat> by, you know, encouraging them to form marketing cooperatives and things like that. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, and there's just there was just a lot of doubt that this could ever succeed. So they were up against ideology as well as financial constraints and also political pressure from people who opposed all of this um, in the South.
0: Sure. So it seems like, you know, for instance, you know, for example, the OEO, which is trying to maximize community involvement, but then pulling back the resources to actually make that happen, kind of counterintuitive in some ways there.
1: Yeah. And and that was, you know, that was a result of pressure from people like Senator Stennis in Mississippi and um, George Wallace in Alabama. They were constantly harassing the OEO and um, kind of portraying a lot of anti-poverty projects as black power groups that were mm-hmm. trying to, you know, mm-hmm. take over the South politically and, you know, would, would lead to black dominance and all kinds of disasters for people in the
0: South. <clears throat> so what were some of the achievements uh, of the Southern Cooperative Movement? You know, we talked about the, the challenges and, you know, some of the things that, that held it back in some ways, but what were some of the things that they, you know, they really saw as, as positives?
1: Well, I think in the communities where they were organised, they did a lot of good. They created jobs for people, um, provided income. They did provide alternatives to migrating away, and so they did uh, encourage. I think a lot of African Americans to stay and kind of help help improve conditions in their own communities. Uh, they gave people pride in you know creating something of their own, and the FSC really emphasized that in its annual reports and kind of publicity and grant proposals and things was they, was, they were really self-help projects. They were they were not, um, you know, despite the government assistance they received, this was not encouraging dependence and, and you know, it was getting away from the traditional welfare system, which just was trapping people in poverty and making them dependent. And these mm-hmm. were attempts by African-Americans, poor black people, to, to set up something on their own and to really solve their own problems. Um, and I think that was really significant and something that people were really proud of. And, and then at the same time, they really did and um, connect those economic and political goals. So where cooperatives developed there was a lot of political activity in terms of enforcing civil rights and trying to overcome those lingering obstacles um, to racial justice. So in Louisiana, and Tallulah, one of the places I mention in the book, the same people who were involved in setting up cooperatives in Tallulah um, helped to elect black people to public office and eventually um, gave Tallulah uh, a majority black local government. And so... You know, it was really empowering people politically, as well as economically. Mm-hmm. So and do, that was,
0: I'm sorry, go ahead, please.
1: Sorry, that, you know, it was just like, getting both of those things right was just really important in moving things forward, I think, in the South.
0: Right. And so do you see the story of rural, uh, sorry, of, of rural organizing um, as a way to help historians better connect and understand the shared histories of the civil rights movement and the war on poverty, which are often seen as two, um, two different two different, and not necessarily intersecting things. Yeah, I think
1: um, what I found, and not just me, but other scholars, uh, too, who have worked on the war on poverty, have really highlighted um, how their struggles for Racial equality and, and economic justice—how those things are connected—and those two movements were really intertwined with each other. People, you know, were involved in both. Um, you know, civil rights activists knew that legal and political rights weren't enough, and they really needed to do something about unemployment and poverty. And it was their lobbying and their publicizing of these problems in the South that helped to um, push the federal government and, and President Johnson into stepping up anti-poverty efforts uh, and then and then the, the money that flowed into these community organizing projects um, you know the community action programs and all of that that came out of the war on poverty that in turn strengthened the black freedom movement in the south uh, by funding the cooperatives and, and other projects as well um, so you know on on the On the progressive side, there were all those interconnections and then, on the other side, on the side of the opposition, there was a lot of overlap there as well. The same people who opposed the civil rights movement opposed the war on poverty and you know just as strongly mm-hmm. as well, because they could see those same connections they could see the links between economic and political empowerment of Black Southerners. They didn't want the federal government coming in and funding things like job training programs or Head Start um, or the cooperatives because they knew that those things would give displaced plantation workers options for staying and getting politically active and potentially voting the people
0: who were in power out of power. Mm -hmm. So. So your book uh, suggests that the relationship between white and black Southerners was fundamentally altered as part of this whole story. Can you talk about that a bit more and why it's significant? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the way I put it in the book
1: is that from the colonial period up to around the 1950s, white people's big problem or main problem, the thing they were most concerned with, was how to get black people to work for them. And they did that, first of all, through slavery and then with the Jim Crow system. And both of those systems, of course, were designed primarily to control black people's labor and deny them alternatives to working on the plantations or doing all the other kind of low wage jobs for white people uh, that they did in the South. And then with the mechanization of agriculture and the civil rights movement and the passage of the Voting Rights Act, uh, black workers were no longer needed. And because of their rights being restored, they could now potentially threaten white people's dominance over that region. And so the question facing white Southerners uh, by the 1960s was, it wasn't, you know, how are we going to get people to work for us anymore? It was, what are we going to do with all of these black people that we no longer need? and who can now vote. And it's kind of like, it's a similar, I think, transition that happened after the Civil War with the transition from slavery to free labor, except the transition in the mid-20th century was going to be from free labor to displaced persons, as Mm -hmm. I put it in Mm -hmm. one of the chapters. Um, Like everyone had to figure out what was going to happen to all of these unemployed and poor people who were being pushed off the plantations, and white southerners, many of them, wanted to solve it through migration and just kind of getting rid of people and forcing them to leave. And social justice activists were saying, "Well, no. I mean, there must be there must be an alternative to that. There must be a better solution." And they were calling for more government intervention in the economy through things like the war on poverty and um, job training programs and better. Social welfare services for people and more, just more investment in these regions. But of course, all of that was very expensive and it would require raising taxes, and that upset the planter class and other wealthy people in the South who just were not willing to accept the costs of mm-hmm. um, dealing with this problem. So like I was really trying to highlight. The class dimensions of what was going on mm-hmm. um, as well as the racial aspects, because I think if we if we fail to to analyze class and to really see what the problem was, which was you know displacement, then we we miss an important part of what was motivating people on both sides of of this um, conflict. <laughs>
0: So toward the end of the book, you suggest then that the struggle over the future direction of the South after the 1960s um, had implications not just then for black Southerners, but more broadly for other Americans, especially other other workers. Um, So can you talk a little bit more about the ways in which... um, you know we can see this sort of broader lesson, if you will, um not just again, for black farmer laborers, but more broadly, for um, you know, for American and American workers, yeah. it it seemed as I was working on the book, it
1: seemed like a lot of the things that I was finding um in the South, were precursors to what happened to a lot of places outside the south later on mm-hmm. in, the, in the later part of the 20th century where a lot of industrial workers in the north and the midwest for example lost, lost their jobs they began losing their jobs by the millions because of deindustrialization and, and globalization and uh, transformations in the economy kind of at the rise of, of finance capitalism and then uh, beyond just um, the industrial workers, there were later on advances in computer technology that ended up displacing more more highly skilled workers as well. So we have here's how it looks to me. I think we have an economy now where computers can basically create these huge amounts of wealth by making automated financial trades. And instead of companies having to go to all the trouble of building a factory and hiring people to actually make stuff, mm-hmm. and then hiring other people to sell that stuff to other people, I mean it's a, it's a huge shift in the economy. I sometimes tell my students the way the way I see it, I kind of think Americans have gone from growing things to making things to making stuff up, uh-huh. and it just it just really makes you wonder where humans are going to fit into this system in the future. So I think, you know, that has implications uh, for all of us, not just, um, you know, related to what was happening in the South in the 1960s. Mm
0: -hmm. And in, in in a lot of ways, the disagreements and conflicts between social justice activists and their opponents in the 1960s parallel debates that are still going on today, uh, related to the relative merits of free markets versus government social programs in solving problems. So as sort of a, a takeaway from the, you know, the broader lessons of this story, what might people considering these issues today, learn from looking at the historical events examined in your book? Yeah,
1: I I just I hope they come out of it with a little bit of a different view of government um, versus private enterprising and and free markets. And there's a chapter in the book where it's basically about, you know, the failures of the free market and the failures of of free enterprise, because that approach was just completely inadequate to Mm -hmm. deal with the problems I was examining. And there's such you know, there's such antip- an antagonism and and, and to pe- antipathy to toward um toward the government these days. And I think it's it's really destructive and uh, as I mentioned uh, in, in the book and, and other uh, other scholars have found this as well, a lot of that um opposition to government action and, and you know, government help for people is rooted in the in these really racist responses to federal intervention in the South and the civil rights era and over things like the war on poverty. And that's when, you know, segregationists kind of created this narrative about federal tyranny and, and began calling for a restoration of states' rights and local control. And in reality, what that meant was just returning things, you know, it, it just meant rich white people being able to, allocate resources in ways that benefited themselves at the expense of poor white people and black people in those communities. And so, you know, I hope that if people read the book, they can maybe see that government can be a force for good and that increased action by government, especially in the economy, doesn't necessarily lead to tyranny or the loss of freedom, as some people think that it does. In 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 the South in the 1960s, um, you know, federal intervention was enhancing freedom for people. It was empowering African Americans, and it was helping to solve really serious problems through the war on poverty, which really, you know, fostered a lot of effective and innovative programs that employed people and empowered people politically. And the the reason those programs were attacked and eventually pretty much destroyed wasn't because they were failures. It wasn't because they were wasting government money or that they were ineffective. It was because they were too successful for the liking of some people. Mm -hmm. And they really threatened the power relationships in in those counties that I was looking at.
0: Well, it's a wonderful book. And Greta Dijon, thank you for joining us on this episode of Working History.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, I'm so grateful that you gave me this opportunity
0: to talk about it. Thanks again to Greta DeJong, Associate Professor of History at the University of Nevada, Reno. She is the author of You Can't Eat Freedom, Southerners and Social Justice After the Civil Rights Movement, published by the University of North Carolina Press. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History.